And once uh, Solomon, who was the king of Israel and the builder of the temple, had finished it, um, there's a kind of massive uh, worship session. uh, And then he prays a long prayer, which then leads back into worship. And we're going to sort of pick up uh, right at the end of the prayer. 2 Chronicles 7, verse 40. Now, O my God, this is Solomon praying, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer of this place. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I'm just going to pray again as, as I begin. Lord God, we say, for you are good. We echo their ancient prayer, and we know that your love endures to ever, forever. And that means today. And Lord, we pray that you would rend the heavens and come down and meet with us as you met with them. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been both extraordinarily excited and a little bit daunted by today now for some months. And the the thing that sort of led to both has been uh, when we had Rod to to come and and visit us and to preach at St. Seps, and all of you from City Temple came as well. Because uh, it felt like, and I don't just think it felt like it was, an incredibly significant moment. I believe that the, the message that Rod preached was a prophetic message I think he preached with great power, also great skill as well. It's a pretty good sermon, and that's partly why I'm daunted. Um, uh, And there was an incredible sense of the presence of God with us, and that something was breaking, and that something was changing, and that something was happening. And uh, ever since then, I've been looking forward today, thinking, well, this is a continuation. This is uh, the next step, if you like, on that road of what God is doing in our city and with our two churches. And, and yet also there's been sometimes a nervousness which I think mirrors a nervousness that I often have when it comes to the things of God. Which is, well, what if it doesn't quite happen? What if I don't preach as well as Rod? What if we aren't able to recapture that moment? What if, well, what if God doesn't show up? And I think the temptation so often uh, for us is to try and do it ourselves. The temptation is to try and take out the uncertainty of relying on God. The temptation is to take out the the things that we can't control and just focus on the things that we can. Focus on getting them really, really good. Make sure that our, our sermons are finally honed, that our worship bands are the finest musicians in the land, that everything that can be great is great, and then we rely on ourselves and we rely on our own strength. And I, I remember the first few times I, I led a time of prayer ministry. 
And it completely terrified me because it was the first time that I was doing something where without God's help, it just fell completely flat where on my own, I couldn't even get half the way. On my own, I couldn't even get a quarter of the way. It would be a complete waste of time and effort. And I feel a little bit like that today, not just for this moment, but more widely. And I was very challenged by what Rod said when he came to St. Sepulchre's about how he was willing to, if you like, own up to the prophecies that God had spoken in this place and over our city and our nation. And he was willing to say, we believe that God has said in 2017 uh, to this congregation at City Temple for years, actually, some years back, that there is going to be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and there is going to be revival. And, and we believe something pretty similar at St. Seps. Ever since we arrived in 2013 and started up our Sunday services again, we've had words spoken over us about an outpouring of the Spirit, about a moment when we would sort of hit the sort of the main, the water main of God's Holy Spirit and suddenly uh, God would burst forth and do something in our midst. And all through that time I've been saying, I hope this happens, I, I, I think it might happen. And and, and yet not maybe had the courage to stand up and say, I think it's going to happen. And then Rod came and just said, revival's going to break out. <laughs> and, and I think he's right. And I think God is going to do something extraordinary. And, and I want to have the courage to stand up and say that that's what I believe as well. Knowing that if I'm wrong, I'll just look like an idiot. <laughs> and actually it doesn't really matter if I look like an idiot. And actually, I might look like less of an idiot if I just rely on myself and rely on the brilliant and talented and gifted people at St. Seps with me. And we might be able to put something together that might even impress some people in this world. And we might even be able to grow our church and it might look like it's a success, but actually, it's a complete waste of time without what only God can bring and what only God can do. And... As a nation, we desperately need something bigger than just a few small congregations tinkering around the edges of our society. The sort of thing that we might think of as success in our two congregations may not make that big a difference. What if every pew in this room was filled with people on a Sunday morning? What if every single chair at St. Sepulchre's was filled with people on a Sunday morning? Well, there'd be what? A couple of thousand people, maximum, probably less. The seven and a half million in London. And yet I remember uh, and I look back at the times when God has done extraordinary things. Often from nothing. This year, 500 years since the Reformation. Or we think of the great revival of the 18th century. Or we think of myriad other times through the history, both of this nation and other nations, when... They have been changed and transformed. Not just a few small congregations on the edge, but the entire nation. In some ways, the entire world. When I read this book, I discover that when Jesus died and rose again, he left a community of 120 people behind. Probably not that different from the number of people there are today in this room. And yet, three billion people around the world own the name of Jesus. And within three centuries, the very empire that had crucified Jesus had bended the knee and began to worship him. 
And I want to see that happen. And that will only happen with God. And so I long for revival. I'm desperate for revival. And I also think it's going to happen because God has prophesied. Or or we've had prophecies, which I think were God speaking, that it will happen. And do you know what? If I'm wrong, at least... At least we went for what really mattered. And all that will happen is that we'll look stupid. But today I want to talk into that space. And I I want us to think, if you like, the the what-ifs or the whens. What will happen when God moves? And I want to speak on worship. Because I believe that God has made clear to, to us that worship is at the very heart of what he's going to do. And particularly over the last few months, it's been more and more on my heart, more and more at something that I've become uh, sort of growingly excited about, but also convinced that it is central to everything that is going to happen. And so I want to speak on worship today. In fact, actually, those of you who are at St. Seps might know that we're going to be looking at worship over the next uh, four or five weeks as well. But, But what I want to say today is, if you like, the core, the foundation, the most important thing about worship, the heart of what it's all about. And in order to sort of pull that out, I want us to look at this wonderful passage in 2 Chronicles, which is, if you like, one of the high points of worship, I was going to say in the Old Testament, but you could say in the history of the world, the moment when the temple is finally finished in Jerusalem. And it's the culmination of a a big, long process. David, uh, the father of Solomon, has this dream years, years before that he wants to build a temple for God. And he says, I'm going to do it, and I'm really excited, and I want this to be a place where the worship of God is... And uh, he's all set to start, and God says, no, wait. You're not going to do it, your son Solomon is. And so David puts lots of preparations in place before he dies, and then Solomon comes to the throne, and he gets going, and it takes years to build. And then we have this moment when the temple is dedicated. And what an extraordinary moment it is. An extraordinary moment of encounter with God. And I want to suggest to you that that is the heart of worship. The most important thing about worship, the thing that everything else revolves around, is the presence of God. Worship is all about the presence of God. In the Old Testament, that was actually physically true as well. You may know something of the geography of the temple. The temple was right in the the sort of the middle of Jerusalem, the great city of the people of Israel. And it it was huge and impressive and vast. I mean, probably most people who saw the temple, it was the most extraordinary, large, impressive, beautiful building that they would ever see in their entire life. And the temple was sort of built in kind of... concentric circles and and as you got closer to the middle it became more significant and holier and in the very middle of the temple was this place called the holy of holies or the most holy place and what was special about the holy of holies was that it was there that the ark of the covenant was or as it's described in our passage the ark of god's might and the ark of the covenant Uh, was symbolic of the relationship, the covenant between God and his people. It had the Ten Commandments written in stone inside it. But it was also symbolic of God's presence in the heart of the people. 
In fact, uh, there were two uh, sort of angelic beings called cherubim carved on the top of it. And in various places in the Old Testament, God is described as the one who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And so that is the place where the presence of God is most fully manifest and realized on earth in the Old Testament. And everything about the worship of the people of God, every aspect of it, and in this passage we see every aspect of it from uh, praise and songs and music to kind of physical expressions of our worship to awe, to adoration, to uh, reminding ourselves of what went before, acts of service, uh, they've got the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it, it's all there, it all comes together, and it all revolves and radiates around the presence of God in the midst of his people. And that sort of geographically represents something extraordinary. We'll come in a moment to sort of thinking about how that relates to us as Christians. But I want then to also say that there's another kind of, in this moment, manifestation of the presence of God as well. So you've got the, the presence of God that is now established in the temple for not quite all time, because the temple does get destroyed, but it is kind of established permanently. But there's also this incredible outpouring of the Spirit of God, this incredible uh, manifestation of the presence of God in their midst, in this moment, as fire literally comes down out of heaven, consumes all the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord fills the temple so profoundly that the priests aren't even able to do their job. Everybody has to leave the temple. You can't get in. And the the presence of God isn't just an idea. It's not just a theory. It's not just something that people uh, kind of think about. It is something which you can see. You can hear. You can feel it. In fact, you cannot ignore it in this moment. It is so dramatically present that you cannot even enter the building. And I think sometimes we're a little bit nervous about talking about the presence of God like that because we're conscious, in some ways we're too conscious of the things that we think we've learned in our minds and understood in theology about God. And we say, surely God is everywhere. Surely God inhabits the whole earth. Surely there is nowhere where I can go from his presence, as the psalmist puts it. How can we talk about God being here, implying that God's not there? And in some ways, I don't have an answer for you. I can't really explain it. I don't really understand it. But that never really bothers me when it comes to the things of God. Because because if you do understand it, that's when you've got a problem. The great uh, theologian St. Augustine once said, if you understand it, it's not God. Of course God is beyond my wildest imagination and dreams and any hope of understanding. And yet, in another way, I can explain it. Because I can look at passages like this and other passages that I'm going to draw our attention to in the New Testament in a moment when God's presence is made dramatically manifest in a, I don't know, fuller way. And, and actually, Solomon wrestles with this very issue. In uh, chapter 6, verse 18, we read this. This is part of his prayer. Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built? 
And Solomon knows that God's presence can't somehow be confined to the temple. That God's presence is everywhere. And yet, just a few lines later, he prays in our passage, And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place. Arise, come, and make your presence manifest in a new way in this place. And he does. And fire falls down. And the presence of the Lord descends on the temple. And I want us to sort of chew on that a little bit today. And I want us to take it and and update it, if you like, to the new covenant, to being part of the new people of God. Because we don't have a temple in Jerusalem anymore, and we don't want or need a temple in Jerusalem anymore, because everything has changed. In fact, in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, we read this. Paul says, don't you know that you, yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you so if you like the geography has now changed and the holiest of holies is not a place in Jerusalem the holiest of holies is wherever you are the holiest of holies is wherever we are and so when we read 2 Chronicles 7 and we read of all this awesome stuff happening where am I where are you in this scene not stood on the outer edges of the audience, looking in, peering in from the back of the crowd and the courtyard. We are right there in the Holy of Holies. We are right there, uh, standing on the Ark of the Covenant with God in his presence. And wherever we are gathered, that is where God's temple is. Ever since the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, we are given unfettered access to the presence of God. And yet again in the New Testament, we see those moments when the the power and the presence of God is made more fully uh, apparent, more fully realized, when it is more fully expressed. Think of uh, the book of Acts. Think of the day of Pentecost when fire and wind sweep through the room where the people are meeting. And it's so dramatic and it's so obvious and it's so clearly something real that cannot be ignored that even the people in Jerusalem who are opposed to the gospel, even the people in Jerusalem who don't like what's going on are forced to admit that something has happened. And they say, I don't know if you remember the story, but they say these guys must be drunk. The one thing that definitely is not going on is nothing. Something has happened. And it's interesting, whenever you see great and mighty moves of God, you will find that the people who don't like it still notice. You will find that there will be opposition. Many of you may know the stories, for instance, of uh, the Wesley brothers and Whitfield and how they preached around Britain and America in the uh, mid-18th century and God sent revival. And one of the features of their ministry is that they often preached outside. And it wasn't just because more people could gather outside, it's because they got thrown out of the churches. And you get opposition, and you get people who don't like what's going on, but the one thing you don't have is people saying that nothing is going on. Because something is so obviously happening. And I think sometimes we we don't quite grasp that sense that, that the Spirit of God, when he is on the move, 
And the presence of God can be made so powerfully manifest that it's indisputable that something is going on. And, and, and so we kind of almost explain away the Holy Spirit. And we, we make the, the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit and the presence of God in our midst little more than a theory. We say, all Christians are filled with the Holy Spirit. And yes, they are. And we say, it doesn't matter whether you are aware of it or not, we are still the temple of God because God's presence is here. And yes, that is right. And yes, that is important. And that is very important. Please don't miss him. But then we say, so there's no, there's no more. And we settle for whatever it is that we've got. But when I read the book of Acts, they didn't. So these guys, they were filled with the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. And some of you may know that the story then continues. And in, in Acts chapter 4, uh, the same group of people with a few more gather once more. And uh, they've just had uh, both a great uh, miracle and excitement. There's been a lame person who's been healed in chapter 3 at the entrance to the temple. And a huge wave of opposition. The the Jewish council have tried to stop Peter and John from preaching. And they've said, nope, we're going to carry on anyway. And they gather together and they cry out to God in prayer. And when they cry out to God in prayer, the final verse of the chapter says, and then everyone who was there was filled with the Holy Spirit. And the ground shook. It's a paraphrase rather than a direct quotation. But that is basically what it says. So the same people who've already been filled with the Spirit, the same people who've just performed an extraordinary miracle, and who've just had the courage through the Spirit to stand up in front of the Jewish council, are suddenly filled with the Spirit again and afresh and more. And again, it's tangibly obvious that God's Spirit is present because the ground shakes. And, and, and I sometimes think, I'm not sure that I've ever seen the, the presence of God so powerfully manifest that nobody could dispute that something was going on. I've never seen tongues of fire or the ground shaking. And, and I long to, not because they'd be fun, but because it would be a sign of the presence of God in our And and I want to say to you today, let's not settle for anything else. Let's not draw back. Let's not do what we so often are tempted to do, which is when God starts to move, we say, that was it. And then we lose our hunger and our desire for more. Let's press on in. And actually that's something that we, we see in this passage in 2 Chronicles. It's one of the reasons why I I come to it. In in the way in which they go about this. And there's a sort of general pressing in, first of all. Uh, So, they already had the tabernacle. This is not the moment when uh, God's relationship with the people of Israel is started off. This is not the moment when the covenant or the law is given. This is not the moment when everything starts. This is quite a long way down the road. But when God blesses David, David, that great worshipper, that great lover of God, says, I want to see God glorified. I want to see God lifted high. I want people to look at God and say, wow, rather than looking at me and saying, wow. So I'm going to build a temple for God. And that's a key starting point. It's one of the key elements of worship 
that it's God-focused. When we worship, it's all about the presence of God. It's all about giving glory to him. When we see God move, when we see the Spirit poured out in revival, one of the common features you will always see is that the glory goes to God. And that the people who are involved in the revival are desperate, not that everybody looks at them and goes, wow, he's amazing, but that they go, wow, he's amazing, God is amazing. And that's what David wants. God has blessed him and he wants God to be lifted high. And so he says, I want to build this temple. Tabernacle's not good enough. And I think many of us would have been tempted to say, hey, the we've had the tabernacle for years, it's great. Maybe we need a bit more canvas and you know, we can sort of restore it a little bit. But, but what's wrong with what we've already got? The presence of God is already there. And David goes, no, no, I want more. And God initially says no. And one of the things, again, about moves of God is that they happen in God's time. God is sovereign, not us. We don't just dial it up and say, God, we want it now. We say, God, we want it. And God gives it when he wants it. But we believe, and I could be wrong on this one, and I'll look stupid if I am, we believe now is the time. Now is a time when God is going to move. But then through the rest of David's life, he's always wanting to do little things to prepare for it. And then Solomon gets building, and it is the great task of Solomon's life. So if you look at 2 Chronicles, uh, the, the story of Solomon's life uh, takes up 2 Chronicles chapter 1, until the end of chapter 9. Nine chapters. Those nine chapters, from chapter 2 until the end of chapter 7, are all about the temple. Solomon, whose reign is the golden age of Israel. When Israel is at its greatest and most glorious, Solomon, who so much else could have been written about, and yet the most important thing, is his building of the temple, his putting of the worship of God at its heart. So there is a, a kind of lifetime's orientation of service towards God and the things of God, in first David and then in Solomon. But then there's a kind of moment as well. And I think we're called to lifetimes of service. If you go away from here today and, and you know, you're filled with the Spirit, something exciting happens, but tomorrow you forget about it, that's no good. But yet there is something about gathering as well. There's something about the worship that we do together. There's something about the worship that we do in song. And, and they gather to dedicate this temple. And we read in uh, chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, something fairly similar to what we read in our, our reading. We read of a vast band, 120 priests on trumpets, all kinds of singers and other instrumentalists. It would have been awesome. Amazing worship. I mean, the worship this morning was pretty awesome and amazing. But there weren't quite 120 of them. And, um, I, well, it was great, but I think this was even better. And, and they cry out and they sing, he is good and his love endures forever. And when they do, the temple of the Lord was filled with clouds. And there's something about this moment as they gather to worship. It's not just a lifetime of service, but there is a moment when they just pour themselves out in the worship of God and they're seeking his presence. And it's interesting, they're seeking his presence in a way that keeps on pressing in. They're not satisfied, actually, the first time round. So they, they do all kinds of sacrifices, they do this big worship time, and God fills the temple and they can't get into the temple and the presence of God is there. And most of us would have gone, yeah, now let's go home. We got it. But Solomon gets down on his knees in front of the whole people of Israel. 
which is quite a gutsy thing for a king to do, and prays a very long prayer, uh, which we haven't got time to read. And it's as though he's saying, Lord, I want more. And he says at the end of his prayer, now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place. And you can imagine some people saying, didn't you notice he's already gone? He's, he's there, not gone. He's already, he's already here. He's already done it. But, but Solomon's sort of saying, no, I want more. No, we need more of the presence of God. And then God sends fire from heaven. And then the cloud fills the temple again. And the people fall down on their faces and they worship. It says in our translation, saying, that the saying word isn't actually there. It has to be put in, in English. Um, it just says, worshipping, and then it gives what they said. And I think they were singing. I think that those trumpeters and everybody got going again. And they are just overwhelmed with the presence of God and I, and I want to say what do we do if, if the everything that is important in revival, if, if the heart of revival is, is God on the move if worship is all about the presence of God well then what, what do we do and the answer is that we press in and we seek God Amen. and we give it everything we've got and we don't stop when we've experienced the presence of God. We say, I want more of the presence of God. And then we say, and I want more of the presence of God. And we push in and we seek more of God's presence in our midst. Always more. Always more. You will never exhaust God. There is always more of God for you to encounter and experience. And, and we long for his spirit to be poured out. And I want to say to you today, we desperately need the presence of God. Amen. And if you are a, a worship leader or a worshipper, make sure that that is your first and only focus. Yes, let's have good music. Yes, let's try and do all the other stuff right. But let's make sure that it is all about the presence of God. And I think of the, the worship that has had an impact on me. Um, I love Bethel's worship. I don't know if you guys all know, but there's this place in California um, called Bethel. Um, and, and they have the most extraordinary worship ministry there. And I think what marks it out is that they are passionate about and obsessed with the presence of God. And you see it in their worship leaders as they, as they lead. They quite often look a bit stupid. I went out there recently. It was, it was not an entirely easy time for me. I, was, um, I had some sort of personal issues while I was there. I broke up with a girlfriend. Um, quite upset, but at times just overwhelmed with the presence of God. And, and when you looked at their kind of big worship leaders, the best worship leaders who are there leading worship, they really do look stupid sometimes. I hope they don't mind me saying that. Because they're no longer fussed about what you think, sitting in the pew or the chair. They're fussed about what God thinks. And all they're really interested in is the presence of God and them responding to the presence of God. And actually one of the things that really excited me when I was there, and I shared that, this with our church um, last week, was I also had a sense of, of actually, we're there as well. And, and I was not sat there thinking, like you often think if you come from a small church and you go to a big mega church. 
wow, I wish our worship was like this. I was sat there thinking, our worship is like this. Amen. It, it may not have quite as many people involved, but, but it is. And the presence of God is there. And that was one of the things that made me renewed in my excitement and anticipation of what God is going to do. Because I think we have that hunger for the presence of God, which is at the heart of worship and the heart of revival. And then finally, alongside that, not only do we need to push in and seek the presence of God, but we need to respond in worship as well. It's like a sort of virtuous circle. So they start worshipping, God shows up. They carry on worshipping. God moves even more powerfully, and their response is worship. So we we read, you know, fire comes down, uh, the, the, the cloud fills the temple, and then all the Israelites saw the, the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple and they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying he is good, his love endures forever. And I mean, it almost feels like they kind of couldn't, couldn't rein themselves in. Like a sort of spontaneous gesture. They're just like, whoa! And they hit the floor and then they worshipped. And, and there's something about worship when it's kind of ripped out of the soul, uh, uh, ripped out of us, as ripped is the wrong word, but kind of bubbles up out of us in, in kind of exuberance and excitement, and we just cannot contain our wonder and glory and adoration and praise at God. And, and the only response, and the right response to when God pours out his spirit is to just turn it back to him in praise and worship. And I think sometimes we, we look at outpourings of the Spirit, and when we read about them, we look at the kind of stuff on the edge. So we say, we want revival because we think lots of people will become Christians. And I mean, I did say earlier, that would be pretty cool, and I want that to happen. We say, we want revival because my church will be full. We want revival because healings will happen. We want revival because this, that, or the other will happen, but actually it is about the glory of God. Actually, it is about God being lifted high. It is about his name being honoured throughout this city, throughout the earth. It is about God's presence and rule and sovereignty and glory being made manifest. And that is what we long for. And when it really happens, that will just catch us up. And our response, and this is why I think worship is so fundamental to revival. Our response is worship because it is in worship that we just pour ourselves out to God Almighty. And we stop worrying about everyone else. Amen.